This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 113th edition of the program. Today is Wednesday, October 4th, and before we get into the news, I want to take a moment to thank all of these kind individuals for deciding to sign up to support us either through Patreon or PayPal. So this week, we have Adam Martin, Alan Axelrod, Bruce Bigelow, Canada for Bernie 2020, Colin Smith, Dennis Avery, George Townsend, Jasmine Mann, Laura Genovese, Richard Katz, Scott Comer, Tom Luck, Veronica Seward-Aponte, and William Plunk. Thank you so much to all of these generous individuals. If you would also like to support the Humanist Report, you could visit humanistreport.com forward slash support or go to patreon.com slash humanistreport. So on today's episode, first, I'll give you an update on how Puerto Rico is doing, as well as Donald Trump's attack on Puerto Ricans and Bernie Sanders' response to said attack, and how Fox News is now trying to spin the situation in order to suit their pro-Trump narrative. Additionally, in this episode, the Senate voted to reconfirm Ajit Pai to the FCC. I'll talk about that and also how Pat Robertson shared his hypothesis as to why he thinks the Las Vegas shooting occurred. And we'll also discuss a pro-life congressman who was exposed as a hypocrite, how Donald Trump is lying about cutting his own taxes, how Democrats are preemptively trying to rig the 2020 presidential primaries, I'll talk about the Children's Health Insurance Program, and what one Senate Democrat had to say about Medicare for All being a litmus test. And finally in this episode, we'll talk about the Las Vegas tragedy and what one public official had to do in order to make sure there was enough funds to pay for the medical bills of victims. All of these topics will be discussed in today's episode. It's going to be a relatively long show, although I don't have any interviews. Hopefully, we'll get back into that in the coming weeks. Uh, but let's go ahead and jump right in because we've got a lot to talk about. Enjoy the show. Last week on the show, we talked about the devastation Hurricane Maria caused in Puerto Rico and how it left most of the island without electricity and a substantial amount of residents without food or clean drinking water. Now, we're learning more about the situation from people on the ground, and we heard from Carmen Julen Cruz, who's the mayor of San Juan, the largest city in Puerto Rico with 400,000 residents, and she explained just how bad the situation really is. I am begging begging anyone that can hear us to save us from dying. If anybody out there is listening to us, we are dying and you are killing us with the inefficiency and the bureaucracy. We will make it with or without you. Because what stands behind me is all due to the generosity of other people. Again, this is what we got last night. Four pallets of water, three pallets of meals, and 12 pallets of infant food, which I gave them to Comerillo, where people are drinking off a creek. 
So I am done being polite. I am done being politically correct. I am mad as hell. Because my people's lives are at stake. So that's a really difficult video to get through because you can really see the pain in her eyes. And look, Carmen is someone who I think exemplifies true leadership because her assessment of the situation in Puerto Rico is not based on what her constituents call and tell her. I mean, she knows what's happening because she's literally waist deep in water trying to find people who were victimized by Hurricane Maria and she's trying to help them. So she knows what's going on and she states that the federal government's response to the hurricane has not been adequate. That's just the fact of the situation. People have no food, no drinking water, no medical supplies, and people that are going to pick up the supplies from the different FEMA distribution centers are been told that there's none. Uh, call on Monday and we'll see what we can do for you. This is, this is how ridiculous this gets. FEMA is telling people that they have to register via internet or the phone. Well, hello, newsflash. We don't have internet and most people don't have a phone connection. So it is amazing that we continue to use the same standard operating procedures that do not work in a situation like the one that we have. I am sure the president wants to help. Uh, I, yesterday I got a call from a chief of staff himself uh, that asked what we needed. But still, things didn't happen as fast as they should have happened. I had to give the ra rations that I got yesterday from FEMA, uh, three or four pallets of water, three or four pallets of food, and four pallets of baby supplies to the town of Comerio because they had not received one bottle of water at the time. So the plans are in place, but the reality does not go and does not fit Yep. to the plans that he have. So you have to do like the Marines. You adapt, you improvise, you overcome. So clearly, in being critical of the federal government's response to Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, she's not doing this for partisan reasons. I think her intentions are pretty clear. She's doing this to tell the federal government, as a matter of fact, that what they're doing is not adequate given the gravity of the situation, and that if they really want to help Puerto Ricans and stop more people from dying and save lives then they have to do more. They have to offer more than what they've been offering. And the thing about these types of hurricanes is that even though you might instinctively think that things will gradually improve with each successive day, that hasn't actually been the case. And this is because most of the island is still left without any electricity. So as people continue using backup generators for power, well, demand for diesel fuel is beginning to increase, which is leading to shortages. And when you have hospitals relying on these backup generators to keep patients alive and they begin to run out of fuel, well, really bad things start to happen. So people died yesterday because there was no diesel in the place that they were at. Where did this happen? Inside one. But where was it? Hospital. They died in the hospital because there wasn't diesel? There's no diesel, there's no life support system. Now, unfortunately, that might only be a snapshot of what's to come because out of Puerto Rico's 69 hospitals, only 11 
have power. And according to a Reuters report, fuel is so precious that deliveries are made by armed guards to prevent looting. Medical staffers are also running low on gasoline for their daily commutes to work. Puerto Ricans are queuing as long as seven hours at the island's few functioning filling stations. Fuel is just the beginning. Without air conditioning, the walls of the operating room were dripping with condensation and floors were slippery. And it's not just hospitals that are experiencing this right now, it's also retirement homes. Today, uh, Ms. Maddow, we visited three retirement homes. And as you walked in, people would jump and shout from their windows asking for help. Uh, these are people that have been left alone. They uh, cannot walk. The elevator isn't working. The water isn't pumping because there's no energy. They cannot cook, so they have no water since yesterday. So clearly people are suffering, and as a direct result of said suffering, People are starting to get desperate, and it's not just hospitals, it's not just retirement homes, because a FEMA report estimates that 44% of Puerto Rican residents do not have access to potable drinking water. That's nearly 1.5 million people. That is absolutely terrifying. So when you take into account the fact that more than 1 million U.S. citizens don't have access to clean drinking water... Well, it's no wonder why Puerto Ricans feel abandoned. And when I talked to a friend from Puerto Rico, that's really the sense that I got, that Puerto Ricans are being left behind by the federal government, that they're second-class citizens. Because my friend Carlos told me that he feels like the government's response has been terrible. And he explains that most of the recovery effort up until this point has not been led by the federal government like you would expect. It's been led by people in the community and local leaders like Carmen Julian Cruz. Now also, Carlos tells me just how in insane it is to see malls and hotels with a steady supply of power and supplies while hospitals are running low on literally everything. So that doesn't make any sense. And there's also been a lot of political ramifications that people aren't really talking about in the mainstream media. So for example, if you're a Puerto Rican, it might feel as though you're actually living in a police state because there are actual curfews being enforced. So the situation is incredibly just... It's honestly heartbreaking, and the criticism being directed at President Trump, well, it's it's warranted, because he knew ahead of time that Hurricane Maria was headed straight for Puerto Rico, and there were a number of things that he could have done before the hurricane hit that would have mitigated the disaster. Now, that's not to say that there aren't logistical issues that make Puerto Rico's situation more difficult to deal with than, say, Texas or Florida, but there are things the U.S. government could have done that it did not. Trump could have deployed a naval ship. He could have sent out supplies preemptively. He could have actually gone to Puerto Rico to see for himself just how bad the situation is after the hurricane occurred and not wait an entire week. And thankfully, Donald Trump has finally done some of these things. The USNS Comfort is actually being deployed to Puerto Rico and he's now visiting Puerto Rico, but these are things that should have been done immediately after it occurred. And there's one more really important thing that needs to be done that has yet to be done. FEMA needs to authorize full disaster help. So Vox reports, the Federal Emergency Management Agency has not authorized every disaster response tool it has 
at its disposal, including aid for more permanent repairs on the island's roads, bridges, water control facilities, public utilities, and government buildings. FEMA authorized this level of aid for Texas 10 days after Hurricane Harvey flooded the Houston area with 4.5 feet of rain. The government of Puerto Rico already asked for this kind of aid. Under FEMA rules, the governor of the affected state is supposed to put in a formal request for this kind of extra help. A spokesperson for FEMA in Puerto Rico told Vox that the Commonwealth just submitted paperwork Tuesday morning, but didn't say how soon the aid might be authorized. Now, I don't understand how the Republican Party, who always lambasts bureaucratic red tape, aren't expediting this particular process because if there's any time to complain about the bureaucracy being extra slow and killing people now's the time but republicans are silent so more needs to be done i understand that gradually the united states is starting to try and help but they're not doing it fast enough and as mayor carmen puts it we need to get our together here and help needs to get into people's hands now not tomorrow not later. Now. I couldn't have said it better myself. Now, if you would like to support this effort and help Puerto Ricans, I'll include a link to a direct relief page in the description box so you can donate to help the effort. And look, the road to recovery is its going to take years. And currently, though, Puerto Ricans are in life-saving mode, as Carmen Yulin Cruz put it. They're not thinking about recovery and rebuilding and whatnot they're thinking about saving people's lives because when there are people in the hospital whose lives literally depend on backup generators having enough diesel fuel to keep them alive that's a number one priority and look the united states should be doing everything in its power to help them out but the fact of the matter is their response to this hurricane has been tepid at best and donald trump should absolutely be ashamed of himself for basically abandoning puerto ricans up until this point in a now viral video, the mayor of San Juan, which is the most populous city in Puerto Rico, called on the country to, quote, save them from dying. And in her plea, she was critical of the federal government's response to Hurricane Maria. Now, of course, since Donald Trump is part of the federal government and is now implicated in such criticism, this triggered a Twitter tirade from him where he then criticized the mayor, saying the mayor of San Juan, who was very complimentary only a few days ago, has now been told by the Democrats that you must be nasty to Trump. Such poor leadership ability by the mayor of San Juan and others in Puerto Rico who are not able to get their workers to help. They want everything to be done for them when it should be a community effort. 10,000 federal workers now on island doing a fantastic job so we'll get to my response but first i want to show you mayor carmen julian cruz's response your reaction to the president well first of all uh mr stepanopoulos there's only one goal and it's saving lives so any any dialogue that goes on just has to be able to produce results and all i did last week or even th this week was asked for help. So, of course, her response to Donald Trump was incredibly classy because unlike him, she's actually a real leader. She exemplifies leadership. She's not a coward. She's literally helping victims herself. And after all that she did, Donald Trump really has the gall to criticize her leadership skills from his swanky golf course through Twitter. I mean, Donald Trump is a complete and utter embarrassment. And to suggest that Puerto Ricans are entitled by saying that they want everything done for them and that they're not already relying on their communities, which they are, 
It's just an unthinkable thing to say at a time like this. I mean, what is Donald Trump thinking? What an asshole. And as Raul Reyes of NBC News sarcastically puts it, nothing shows leadership like attacking the victims of a deadly hurricane. And he wasn't done blaming the victims just yet because when he finally arrived in Puerto Rico a week after Hurricane Maria hit, he made a joke that really illustrated just how big of a piece of shit he really is. Now, I hate to tell you, Puerto Rico, but you've thrown our budget a little out of whack because we've spent a lot of money on Puerto Rico, and that's fine. We've saved a lot of lives. How dare you fucking Puerto Ricans get hit by a hurricane right now when I'm trying to push through more tax cuts for myself and my rich friends? I mean, do you know how inconvenient this really is and how much money we're going to have to spend on you now? I mean, why did you choose to get hit by a hurricane, Puerto Rico? I mean, that's essentially what the implication is here. And even though he was being half serious... He's the president of the United States. You can't say shit like this. These are victims of a hurricane, and he is effectively blaming the victims and making a stupid-ass joke like this. See, and the thing about Puerto Ricans being supposedly entitled, well, they are entitled to help from the federal government when hurricanes hit, because guess what? They pay their taxes just like every other U.S. citizen. The only difference is that Puerto Ricans are technically second-class citizens, because even though they pay their taxes, and contribute to the U.S. economy, well, they don't get all the benefits entitled with citizenship because they don't get to vote in presidential elections. So while they do get to have a say in presidential primaries, they do not get to vote in general elections, which is why Donald Trump probably doesn't care about them since they can't vote for him. So what does he have to lose by ignoring Puerto Rico? In his mind, nothing. But getting back to Mayor Carmen Julian Cruz, Given the severity of the situation in Puerto Rico, I think personally that her so-called criticism was actually pretty tepid. But in response, what little criticism Donald Trump received from her, he was completely triggered. But he shouldn't be triggered. Instead of criticizing Mayor Carmen Julian Cruz, maybe he should look in the mirror. Because if I recall correctly, Donald Trump, being the president of the United States, having jurisdiction over Puerto Rico, is the one that failed to do anything meaningful before Hurricane Maria hit, when he knew Hurricane Maria would hit, and he could have potentially mitigated the disaster, but he didn't set foot in Puerto Rico until a week after Maria hit, and he didn't even deploy the U.S. Navy until a week after Maria hit. So clearly, with his response, or lack thereof, it's showing that Donald Trump doesn't give a fuck about Puerto Ricans. But don't worry, because apparently, he loves Puerto Rico. In fact, he dedicated a golf trophy to you guys. On behalf of all of the people of Texas, and all of the people of, if you look today and you see what's happening, how horrible it is, but we have it under really great control, Puerto Rico and the people of Florida who have really suffered over this last short period of time with the hurricanes. I want to just remember them and we're going to dedicate this trophy to all of those people that went through so much that we love, a part of our great state, really a part of our great nation. And I'll tell you what, I've been this from the beginning, and I have to say, our Team USA, wow, did you play well. What a nice gesture. I mean, thank you so much, Mr. President. I'm sure Puerto Ricans are so thankful that you dedicated a stupid fucking golf trophy to them as 44% of the island, if not more, doesn't have access to potable drinking water. Thank you so much for doing this. I mean, what a nice guy. This is... Donald Trump is a joke. I find this insulting. I find what he did here just insulting. I could see if he did everything in his power to mitigate disaster, but I mean, he's 
basically ignored Puerto Rico. So this is insulting. You can take that trophy and shove it right up your asshole. But here's the thing. Donald Trump's response to Puerto Rico was inadequate because Donald Trump is not a real leader. However, the good news is that he did get called out by a real leader, Bernie Sanders. And Bernie Sanders not only put Donald Trump in his place, but he theorized as to why Donald Trump said what he did and what might have possessed him to blame the victims in a situation like this. First, I want to ask you about Puerto Rico. What did you make of President Trump tweeting um, that Puerto Ricans, quote, want everything to be done for them? You know, speaking from his fancy golf club, playing golf with his billionaire friends, attacking the mayor of San Juan, who is struggling to bring electricity to the island, food to the island, water to the island, gas to the island. That is just, it is unspeakable. And I don't know what world Trump is living in. People in Puerto Rico are suffering one of the worst disasters in the history of that island. We have got to do everything we can to help them. We all have got to remember the people of Puerto Rico are American citizens, entitled to the same help as the people of any other community in America. Now, the White House denies it, but there are a lot of critics who say that race or ethnicity might be playing a factor here. What do you think? Well, look, given the president's history on race, uh, given the fact that he a few months ago told us that there were good people on both sides when neo-Nazis were marching in Charlottesville, yeah, I think we have a right to be suspect that he is treating the people of Puerto Rico in a different way than he has treated the people of Texas uh, or Florida. So I do think that Bernie Sanders is partially correct here in saying that we're not wrong to suspect Donald Trump might be motivated by racism, given his past history. However, I think that part of the reason why Donald Trump is only now acting and why he's been so triggered by criticism is because he doesn't want Puerto Rico and Hurricane Maria to turn into his Katrina. So that's why he's explicitly comparing it to Katrina and saying this isn't a, a disaster like, you know, Hurricane Katrina. So this is nothing like that. That's what, it, that's what he cares about. He cares about his ego, and he doesn't want this to be his Katrina. I think that's pretty apparent. And additionally, he just doesn't care about Puerto Rico as much because, again, they don't vote for him. So why would you care as much about a group of people who, in his view, only want something from him, but can't give him anything in return. So that's what, you know, uh, we're dealing with here and President Donald Trump just being a complete joke. And I really hope that during his time in Puerto Rico, he's not just there for a photo op and he actually takes the time to listen to Puerto Rico's 3.4 million residents and tries to address their concerns and do what they say he needs to do to help them. Because up until this point, Everything he's done has given us the indication that he doesn't give a fuck about them. And to me, I think that's unforgivable. And it really shows just how awful a person he is. I mean, to not care about them and not do anything about Hurricane Maria is one thing. But to then go and blame the victims. I mean, that's the whole new level of insanity here that is only possible with Donald Trump. Since Fox News is effectively the public relations arm of the Republican Party and seeing that Donald Trump's response to the devastation Hurricane Maria caused in Puerto Rico has been inadequate to say the least, Fox News decided to come to Donald Trump's rescue to rehabilitate his broken image and do what they do best, 
propaganda on behalf of Republicans. So in this case, they're trying to spin Donald Trump's botched response to Puerto Rico in two ways. First of all, they're trying to make it seem as though Donald Trump is really doing more than he should be doing. And second of all, they're trying to downplay just how dire the situation really is in Puerto Rico. Case in point. We are back with a Fox News alert. Much needed aid arriving to the hurricane ravaged island of Puerto Rico desperate for food, water, and electricity. At least 16 people have died. That number expected to rise as the recovery continues. Government officials estimating that at least 10,000 people are on the ground helping with relief efforts right now. So by watching that short clip, you get the sense that Donald Trump's response to Hurricane Maria has been adequate and that they're actually receiving the aid that they need, but that really never was the main criticism from the people of Puerto Rico. I mean, nobody's contending that the federal government isn't doing anything, but what they are saying is that they haven't done enough and what they're currently offering isn't sufficient, which is why the mayor of San Juan literally begged for the federal government's help in this clip. Begging anyone that can hear us to save us from dying. See, the thing about that cry for help is that it makes Donald Trump, the president of the United States, having jurisdiction over Puerto Rico, look like a bad guy. It makes it seem like he's an asshole who's just not doing enough because, well, he's not doing enough. So what Fox News then did is try to downplay the situation and make it seem as though people really aren't dying because according to Geraldo Rivera, you know, he doesn't see it. So if he doesn't see it, then it must not be happening. FEMA people, HHS people all have their heart in the right place. I have gotten tremendous... How about the President of the United States? I, I think the President needs to get the information uh, that, that he needs to get. And apparently uh, he hasn't been getting it or he hasn't been watching the news. But are people, are people dying? I've been, I've been traveling around. I, I don't see people dying. I spoke to the doctors. They saw 53 patients and they had a septic, a person who was septic, but nobody dying. I, I wonder. Well, dying is a continuum, right? If you don't get fed for seven, eight days and you're a child, you are dying. If you have 11 people like we took out of a nursing home, severely dehydrated, you are dying. Um, so you wish you had characterized that a little more? It is. It is. I said it the way it is. I don't have to characterize anything uh, in any way that is not the reality. That is the truth. He who has eyes will be able to see it. He who has an open heart will be able to feel it. Those that prefer to be blinded to injustice, that's their issue. I have no time for that. That right there is, I think, a quintessential example of mainstream media bias because if a story and the reality of a story, mind you, doesn't fit their narrative, then they'll just change the narrative. Now, all throughout that clip, Geraldo Rivera had one objective. It wasn't to inform viewers about the situation. It was to do damage control for his president, Donald Trump. So if you didn't notice what he was doing there, when Mayor Carmen was talking about FEMA and how HHS people have their hearts in the right place, Geraldo Rivera took it upon himself to invoke Donald Trump in hopes of coaxing her into saying something nice about him. And he even implied there that 
since he didn't personally see people dying, I mean, it just must not be happening. Well, Geraldo, just because you don't see people dying doesn't mean that it's not happening. I've never seen a million dollars. That doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. And you're speaking with the mayor of the largest city in Puerto Rico who's literally waist deep in water trying to save people. So, I mean, really, how dare you confront her about the way she described the situation because it didn't suit your narrative? What a loathsome human being you are. But, I mean, he wasn't done there yet because he then had the nerve to question whether or not Mayor Carmen's response and criticism of the U.S. federal government was a political move. How much of that is politics? The fact that you and the president are different parties and... Well, I, I, I'm not a member of the Democratic Party. I have Democratic values, shared values with the Democratic Democrats. Senator Marco Rubio's office came here. He's not a Democrat. Uh, General Buchanan, don't take the word of a five foot tall, 120 pounds mayor. Gen you're, you're plenty big enough. General <laughs> Buchanan said yesterday, we don't have what it takes to deal with this situation. So we, don't we, take my word for it. Take the general's word. So as you can see there, he just couldn't accept that she was critical of the federal government's response to Hurricane Maria, because clearly there is more that the federal government could have done, and there's still more that they could be doing right now in order to mitigate disaster. But Geraldo Rivera just wasn't buying it. So when that interview was over, he then spoke with the cameraman, and he still questioned her motives and questioned whether or not she was being genuine about her concern for her constituents. And he also decided to psychoanalyze her in the process. All right, that's uh, part one of my interview with the mayor, who, as you heard, still claims people are dying, although the death count is 16, has been 16 since the storm. I could find no one uh, dying, and she was highly critical of President Trump. Part two of my interview, uh, and my interview, which will, I'm sure, generate some controversy, is in the nine o'clock hour. But I, 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 as I said, I, I severely and profoundly lament the fact that this, uh, that politics has introduced its ugly head. The situation is uh, bad enough. Puerto is an island, as I said, split in half. Uh, the elections are highly contentious. I think she has a loathing for Donald Trump and in her mind somehow uh, dismisses the effect of two historic back-to-back -back storms. So I think that the, she needs an open heart and, uh, and some gratitude. And, and I... <laughs> that to me was just unbelievable. I mean, it, it's not really shocking, but still to see this level of bias, I mean, it, it's... With how brazen they are, I'm shocked that more people aren't on to Fox News. I mean, a lot of well-informed voters know that Fox News is just right-wing propaganda, but for them to be the number one news network in the country, I mean, that still means that a lot of people are being misled by Fox News. And the problem with Fox News is that they change the narrative in order to fit their pro-Republican, pro-Trump agenda. And... Unfortunately, that's not the way that reality works, because in some situations, Donald Trump was just objectively inept in his response to Hurricane Maria. I mean, he's been widely criticized for it, and that criticism is warranted. But if you're Fox News, you don't care about whether or not Donald Trump deserves criticism. You just do what you do best, propaganda, and try to rehabilitate the image of the Republican Party, which is currently the party of death and destruction, not only because they try to inflict death and destruction among 
the United States citizens and um, other countries, but because when destruction and death actually happens, they do nothing about it. So they harm people directly and indirectly, which is why I often refer to them as the party of death and destruction. But of course, you know, just for good measure, Geraldo Rivera decided to throw in a mild criticism of Donald Trump just to make it seem as though he's a little bit more objective than he actually is. I think that the problem is that the president chose to tweet uh, about her and that's what made a lot of people angry. Why is the president, uh, you know, uh, 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 punching down uh, that way? Uh, I think it was unnecessary and this is an unsavory controversy and I wish it never happened. Back to you. See, he's totally not biased, everyone. He just called out Donald Trump for a second. <laughs> And, you know, what's interesting to me is that in admitting there that Donald Trump was in the wrong for initially attacking San Juan's mayor, isn't he undermining his entire point about her politicizing this issue and being hyperbolic? It kind of does undermine his point. But I mean, again, in, in asking these sorts of questions, I'm implying that Fox News is more nuanced than it really is when that couldn't be further from the truth. Fox News has been producing fake news before fake news became a thing, which is why people that watch Fox News are actually less informed than people that watch no news. And that's scary considering the agenda setting power so-called news organizations like Fox News actually have. The media, they have an agenda-setting ability. They can literally change the salience of political issues in this country. They can set the agenda. And what's most scary, I think, about the media is that they can actually change the way that we view issues. They can literally alter our standard of judgment and the level of scrutiny we apply to particular political issues. Which is terrifying because that's what Fox News is doing. And they have no interest in actually informing the American public. They just have one goal. And that is to promote the corporate agenda of the Republican Party. And when the Republican Party looks bad, Fox News is right there to help them out. Now look, it's not just Fox News. Of course, MSNBC is the propaganda arm of the Democratic Party as well. But Fox News is objectively worse because the Republican Party is objectively more harmful and destructive than the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party, they just don't care about the American people, whereas the Republican Party, they actually hate the American people. And the contempt that they have for the American people is apparent in their continued actions that they take that harm us. So look, Fox News, in trying to persuade you that the situation in Puerto Rico isn't as bad as it really is based from, you know, the analysis and assessment of people on the ground, don't believe them because they have one agenda and that is to do damage control for Donald Trump and the Republican Party. So never trust anything that someone from Fox News has to say because nine times out of 10, it's probably going to be incorrect. And if they do happen to get something right, then it's always by accident because Fox News is they're the quintessential example of propaganda in this country. In more terrible news this week, the Senate chose to reconfirm Ajit Pai to the FCC for four more years in a 52-41 to 41 vote. Now, this is problematic because if Ajit Pai was not reconfirmed, then that would have certainly saved net neutrality, at least in the short term, because that would have left one Republican commissioner and one Democratic commissioner 
and the FCC would have been deadlocked and they would not have been able to approve Ajit Pai's proposal to gut net neutrality. So in voting to reconfirm Ajit Pai to the FCC to finish his five-year term, the Senate effectively sealed the fate of the internet and it's almost a guarantee that net neutrality will now go the way of the dodo. Now, shortly after being reconfirmed, Pai released this statement. I am deeply grateful to the U.S. Senate for confirming my nomination to serve a second term at the FCC and to President Trump for submitting that nomination to the Senate. So that means that presumably there are 53 people that are happy about this. Ajit Pai and the 52 senators that voted to reconfirm him because this is such bad news that even one of his former colleagues on the FCC called his plan crazy. So Jessica Rosenworth will describe the FCC's plan, which is being spearheaded by Ajit Pai to lower broadband standards from 25 to 10 megabits per second as, quote, crazy. And lowering the standards for broadband is just one of the many ways that Ajit Pai is screwing over the American people at the behest of ISPs. Now, I was actually pleasantly surprised with the fight that Senate Democrats put up to try and block Ajit Pai from being reconfirmed, but unfortunately, any procedural hurdles that they tried to use, it just wasn't enough because, you know, simply put, Republicans hold a majority of seats in the Senate. So anything that Democrats tried to do, you know, it it didn't really seem like it would have worked. So reconfirmation was basically a foregone conclusion, according to a lot of reports. Now, Colin Letcher of The Verge explains, a campaign was mounted by Democrats to block Pai's reconfirmation, and during a floor debate, Democratic senators criticized Pai's agenda. Ahead of the vote, Senator Elizabeth Warren criticized Pai for his laissez-faire approach to media consolidation and pointed to regulations ended by Pai that benefited conservative TV station owner Sinclair Broadcast Group. Warren said when Trump nominated Pai, Sinclair got exactly what it wanted. Senator Maria Cantwell, citing Pai's deregulatory crusade against the current net neutrality rules, said last week that she would be voting against his reconfirmation. In a speech, she said Pai had shown disdain for important public interest principles. He's taken actions that I think will have consumers paying more for less internet access. So I typically don't give Democrats much credit, but I mean, credit where credit is due. In this instance, they actually did have a spine, and most Senate Democrats did the right thing, and not only challenging Ajit Pai, but voting no on his reconfirmation. But of course, not all Democrats fell in line because there was one Democrat in particular that not only voted for Ajit Pai to be reconfirmed to the FCC, but literally bragged about doing it. Can you guess who? Well, of course, it was Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia. So shortly after the vote occurred, he took to Twitter to state, I voted to confirm Ajit Pai. We've worked closely on ways to bridge the digital divide in West Virginia, and I look forward to continuing this work. Now, he also released a statement saying, I was glad to vote to confirm him as the FCC chairman. Ajit and I have been working together on a number of ways to bridge the digital divide in our country. You just voted for someone that's going to destroy the internet as we know it. Now, the example that he's citing there in bridging the digital divide, that's a talking point. Ajit Pai is not improving the internet. They try to sell you on Ajit Pai by saying he's trying to expand access to the internet to rural areas, but what he's really doing is he's making the internet a more pro-corporate entity, 
which is bad for everyone. It's bad for consumers. And the only people that benefits are the CEOs of Verizon, Time Warner, Comcast, and AT&T. So Joe Manchin is lying to you here, but of course he's not alone because we also had other Democratic senators vote to confirm Ajit Pai. There were four in total. So there was Joe Manchin. There was also Claire McCaskill of Missouri. John Tester of Montana, and Gary Peters of Michigan. But it's not just Democrats. Of course, there were Republicans that bragged about voting to reconfirm Ajit Pai. We had Republican Senator Pat Roberts declare that he was, quote, proud to vote to confirm Kansan Ajit Pai to the FCC. Look forward to working with him on expanding access to broadband in rural areas. Same talking point. Republican Senator Cory Gardner also tweeted, congrats to my friend Ajit Pai on his confirmation as chairman of the FCC. And then Shelley Moore Capito states, proud to vote to confirm my friend Ajit Pai. He's been a great partner in my efforts to bring broadband to West Virginia. But look, here's the thing. Those Republicans voting for Ajit Pai and then bragging about it, that doesn't surprise me. But for Democrats, I expect better. Even though the Democratic Party is sold out to special interests, you still expect them to be better. And we should hold them to a higher standard because they claim to be the party of the working class, to be the party of the people. And yet, with four Senate Democrats voting to reconfirm this shill who's going to destroy the internet, I think that the Democratic Party should rain down on them. I mean, Chuck Schumer should reprimand them for what they did. This is unforgivable. It's unacceptable. And I hope that every single one of these corporate Democrats lose their primary election. There's no excuse. If you vote for Ajit Pai, someone who is just brazenly a shill for Verizon and Comcast and AT&T and Sinclair... There's honestly, there's, there's no excuse for you. You are irredeemable. There's nothing about you that that makes you a good politician or even a good person because in voting for someone who's going to destroy the internet, you're stifling democracy because we use the internet not just to communicate with each other and to access information, but the internet has been integral to democracy. I mean, we use it to look up politicians that the mainstream media doesn't cover. I mean, I think that Bernie Sanders' campaign wouldn't have had half as much steam and momentum as it had without the internet. So Ajit Pai is now going to do um, what he was planning to do all along. Roll back Title II net neutrality regulations and completely fuck the internet for ordinary Americans. It's a sad day in America. At this point, even though it's still early, it's pretty clear that Bernie Sanders will in fact be running for president again in 2020, but there is another likely contender in 2020 on the Democratic side, Kamala Harris. Now, going into the 2020 primaries, Bernie Sanders has an advantage. He has a level of name recognition comparable to Hillary Clinton's in 2016, and that scares the Democratic Party establishment because they don't want Bernie Sanders to win because they still believe that they need to cater to their donors. And if Bernie Sanders wins, then they're not going to be able to deliver on the promises that they've made to donors since they've already sold out. But what is the Democratic Party establishment doing to ensure that Bernie Sanders isn't successful again? Well, they are changing the rules to disadvantage Bernie Sanders. They're trying to rig it. Again. John Myers of the Los Angeles Times reports California Governor Jerry Brown has signed a bill moving the state's primary election to early March. Brown's decision, announced without fanfare on Wednesday, means the state will hold its presidential primary on March 3rd, 2020. It's a reversal from a decision made in 2011 to push the state's primary elections back until June after years of trying and failing 
to entice major candidates to bring their campaigns to California instead of smaller, more rural states. Now, what is this really about? Well, in moving up California's primary, this gives a huge advantage to candidates from California, specifically Kamala Harris, who currently is the establishment's favorite pick for 2020. Now, the thing about Californian primaries is that they're difficult for relatively newer candidates. I mean, the state has a huge population. It's relatively large in size. I mean, territorially speaking, too. So campaigning in the state is really difficult. So obviously, the candidate with more funds, more name recognition in that state will have the advantage. And this is something that benefits Kamala Harris. So obviously, this is the Democratic Party establishment's move to preemptively bias the 2020 primaries in favor of Kamala Harris. So I'm not necessarily worried that this will hurt Bernie Sanders because I think Bernie Sanders is likely the favorite to win probably a majority of states in 2020. But what I am worried about is future elections because this will make the anti-establishment candidate, any progressive candidate with less name recognition, you know, this will make it more difficult for them to win in California. And the reason why the DNC moved red states ahead on the primary schedule was because they wanted to demoralize any of Hillary Clinton's potential opponents and give her an early lead. And this is what they're doing here. If they can give Kamala Harris an early lead, then they can do to Bernie what they did in 2016 and say, Bernie, you know, Kamala won the race. Why are you still here? You should probably drop out and concede to Kamala Harris. Now, look, again, I think that Bernie will probably win California in spite of this, but it still just shows just how sleazy the Democratic Party establishment is. They clearly didn't learn their lesson after rigging a primary last time and then losing to Donald Trump in part because they chose to rig the primary and pissed off, you know, their base. They're doing the same fucking thing. And this makes me irate. Like, it makes me so angry because what they don't realize is that they are jeopardizing their own chances. They're shooting themselves in the foot because if, for whatever reason, Bernie Sanders is not the Democratic nom nominee in 2020, if he does decide to run again as a Democrat, then you better do everything you can to make sure that the optics look good to progressives. Meaning, if we feel as though you rigged the primary and it was unfair... Guess what's going to happen? The same fucking thing that happened in 2016. Progressives will stay home and not come out to support the candidate who cheated. Because people don't like voting for cheaters. People don't like feeling robbed. And really, this isn't just about California. Because if they're willing to do this here, then it's showing that they're still willing to bias the rules in favor of the candidate that they like. And with the establishment already rallying around Kamala Harris, you know, that's that's a bad sign for the fairness of the Democratic Party primaries in 2020. So the Democratic Party never learns. They, they just never learn. They still haven't gotten rid of superdelegates, even though they curtailed the power that superdelegates have. What is it? They still have like a third of the power that they had before. So if you if you don't want to be democratic, if you want to run primaries and uh, competitions unfairly, don't call yourself the Democratic Party. Call yourself the undemocratic party because that's exactly what you're doing. So I find this completely egregious. And look, we need to be very cognizant of everything that they do. We have to watch them like hawks because we know damn well the Democratic Party establishment does not want to give up any power to Bernie Sanders. They want to relegate him to... Basically just being the uh, cheerleader for the Democratic Party without actually giving him any meaningful power. We're not going to let that happen. If you fuck this up, then uh, 
we get Trump again for another four years. And that's what it seems like the Democratic Party is uh, willing to do here. They're willing to risk it all again. Also, they can get their preferred candidate in because they don't want Bernie Sanders to have any power because they're corrupt. Unbelievable. So I couldn't not talk about this story because I think this is incredibly important. We've got to watch everything that these shady bastards do. So as you all know, recently President Donald Trump unveiled his tax reform proposal that would disproportionately benefit the wealthy. Now, Donald Trump received criticism because it looks as though he designed a tax reform plan that would specifically enrich himself. But he assured us that even though it looks bad, he's not really going to get that much out of this tax reform proposal. Wink, wink. Well, taxes, Mr. President, on tax reform, did your plan help the wealthy too much? There's criticism that you My plan is for the working people, and my plan is for jobs. So you wouldn't benefit under your tax plan? No, I don't benefit. I don't benefit. You don't think fact, people benefit? In fact, very, very strongly, as you see, there's no, there's, I, I think there's very little benefit for people of wealth. The estate tax appeal is a benefit for The state tax is one of the things, and that's if you look at it, for farmers and people with small businesses. That, my friends, is what I would like to call bullshit. But Donald Trump isn't alone because there are others in his administration, like Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, who also maintain that this is not a tax cut for the wealthy, even though it does just that cut taxes for the wealthy. Because in an interview with George Stephanopoulos on ABC, Mnuchin claimed, as I've said all along, the objective of the president is that rich people don't get tax cuts and we're perfectly comfortable explaining to the American people how that works and we'll give plenty of examples. Now, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that they are lying through their teeth. In fact, PolitiFact, unsurprisingly, rated Donald Trump's claim that he wouldn't benefit under his own tax proposal false. And Bernie Sanders also tweeted out stats from the New York Times that lays out exactly how much money Donald Trump will gain from his own tax reform plan. So by repealing the estate tax, he'll gain $1.1 billion. He'll get another $31 million by repealing the alternative minimum tax. And by taxing certain business income at 25%, Trump will get another $16 million. And by cutting the highest tax rate, he'll get another $500,000 in his pocket. Now, Donald Trump's administration, you know, they must think that we're dumb. Because to believe that he is not going to benefit from a tax plan that very clearly cuts taxes of elites, you know, that he's obviously vociferously pushing for because he wants more money in his pocket, you know... It's clear that he's doing this to cut his own taxes, and he knows exactly the, you know, intended impact that this would have, which is why his administration is trying to suppress a report that contradicts their narrative. So Jake Johnson of Common Dreams reports, as the Trump team struggles mightily to portray a tax plan that would disproportionately reward the wealthy and Trump himself as pro-working class, the Treasury Department has reportedly suppressed a government analysis that exposes as false President Trump's central claim that workers, not rich corporate shareholders, would be the primary beneficiaries of a massive reduction in the corporate tax rate. The Wall 
Street Journal's Richard Rubin first reported that the analysis, published in 2012 by the Office of Tax Analysis, was deleted from the Treasury Department's website on Thursday. The suppressed study demonstrated that workers pay 18% of the corporate tax, while owners of capital pay 82%. Rubin noted a breakdown that the Trump administration and the Republican Party has effectively reversed in selling their proposals to the American public. OTA's conclusions were in line with many economists' views and close to estimates from the nonpartisan Joint Committee on Taxation and Congressional Budget Office, Rubin adds. The JCT, which will evaluate tax bills in Congress, estimates that capital bears 75% of the long-run corporate tax burden, with labor paying the rest. So what Donald Trump's tax plan would do is take that tax burden and shift it away from multinational corporations and put that burden on the working class. Isn't he nice? Even though him and his rich buddies have more money than they could ever spend in 10 lifetimes, let alone one, they're still taking money away from people that need it the most, the working class. And this is really harmful for the economy. I mean, Donald Trump claims to care about the economy, but when you do this sort of trickle-down economics, obviously that hurts the economy because rich people and giving them more money, what do they do? They sit on that money. It goes in their bank accounts and they don't reinvest that money back into the economy. So I feel like a broken record because every time I talk about tax reform, I have to explain economics 101 to Donald Trump. I mean, I can't even call it economics 101. I mean, this is elementary economics. Don't take money away from poor people. Otherwise, that will hurt the economy. Trickle-down economics it's never, ever, ever going to work. We don't have to try it for a tenth time to determine, yep, still doesn't work. It'll never work. So Donald Trump is lying to everyone. He's trying to convince us that tax cuts for himself would actually benefit us. How dumb do you think we are, Donald Trump? And again, he's trying to tempt us into supporting tax cuts for the wealthy by saying, hey, look, if you're middle class, I'm going to double your standard deduction. But what he doesn't tell you is that other exemptions will go away. So in the end, it's going to balance out. You'll have about the same amount of money in your pocket. Uh, if you're a working class person, you'll have less money since you're paying more taxes. Uh, and rich people, they make off like bandits. This is a robbery. Donald Trump and his rich friends are robbing us blind and they're lying to us. It's almost like a bank robber went into a bank, robbed them, took the money and then pretended like he didn't actually do that. You are robbing us, Donald Trump. We're onto you. And that's why the American people are pushing back against your tax reform proposal. So um, he's going to continue to push for this and lobby for it because again, he's going to benefit a lot from this. I mean, you saw the numbers. I mean, he will be that much richer than he already is. Um, what is it? He'll receive a billion just from repealing the estate tax because that's something that he really wants to do because when he dies, he wants to make sure that the money that's passed on to his kids is not taxed so they have even more money. And this is kind of what, you know, maintains the oligarchy, because rich people die, they pass that money on to their children, it doesn't get taxed, and you know, the cycle of richness that wasn't earned, it just, it's it's self-perpetuating. And this is counter to what Republicans tell you about the way the economy should work, right? Because they claim that we live in a meritocracy, and if you're struggling, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, work harder, and you'll get ahead. But what they want for their own children is for them to just be passed on wealth after they die. I mean, it's, just, it, it, it's this double standard. They have a different set of standards that apply to them. And when it comes to peasants, you know, we're shit. We're nothing to them. They don't care about us. So Donald Trump's tax plan, make no mistake about it, 
it's very beneficial for him. And I guarantee you that um, he knows this. He, he's just playing dumb because he wants to um, fatten his own wallet. But, you know, you're not going to get this plan by us without criticism, Trump, because we know what you're doing. You're a greedy pig. Um, and the American people are smarter than that. I think it's the case that most reasonable people would conclude that if we're not going to have a single-payer healthcare system in the short term, then the least we could do as a country is ensure that children have health insurance, right? I think most people, even those who are against Medicare for All, would agree with that premise. But Congress, in deciding to not reauthorize the Children's Health Insurance Program, they are now jeopardizing the health care of 8.9 million children. So as you all know, uh, this is a program that has to be reauthorized every couple of years, depending on how long they um, approve it for, and it just expired. Congress couldn't get their shit together to reauthorize CHIP. <laughs> Unbelievable. So Aaron Dooley of ABC News reports, Last reauthorized in 2015, CHIP is a partnership between the federal government and states that ensures American children from low- and moderate-income families. And though the program situation isn't yet dire and won't be until the states begin to run out of money, some states are starting to get nervous about paying for the program. States are optimistic that Congress will actually act. They're not totally panicked yet, said Diane Rowland, executive vice president of Kaiser Family Foundation, but they need to know very soon that additional money will be coming so they'll know how they can continue their programs. Now, when this bill was signed into law by then-President Bill Clinton, the uninsured rate among children was almost 14%, but as of 2015, with 8.9 children covered, that rate dropped to less than 5%. I mean, so to say that CHIP is a success is a massive understatement. That brought healthcare to millions of children in this country. And now it's jeopardized. So more on CHIP. So eligibility rules vary by state, but in most states, children under the age of 18 and younger qualify if their family's income falls under the 200% of the federal poverty line, just under 50000 for a family of four. Some states also offer coverage to the children and families earning 250 or even 300% of the poverty line. 20 states offer coverage for pregnant women as well. Benefits also vary by state, but coverage generally includes routine checkups, immunizations, mental health services, prescriptions, inpatient and outpatient hospital care, and x-ray and lab services. And with a price tag of $13.6 this is actually a relatively affordable program. I, I mean, it's well worth the price, right? Considering Congress just voted to approve a $700 billion Pentagon budget. So, I mean, if we can approve of $700 billion for the military, then certainly we can approve of a bill that doesn't even cost $14 billion for children, right? And since CHIP only provides matching funds to states, Congress's failure to reauthorize the program doesn't necessarily mean that all these kids will, in fact, lose their health insurance. Hopefully, Congress does come through. But it does mean that states may change the eligibility rules and offer less benefits, or they may have to cut funding from other programs such as education or health care from senior citizens, just for example. So it's really frustrating that Congress can easily pull $700 billion out from the budget for the military, but they can't pull out $14 billion for children and to ensure that they have health insurance. I mean, 
what kind of a morally bankrupt country do we live in to where we prioritize military spending over um, spending for health insurance for children? I mean, we prioritize death and destruction over health care for children. That's sick. That's reprehensible. Congress has got to act. I mean, they wonder why people hate them. I mean, currently Congress has, I believe, a 16% approval rating. Hmm, I wonder why that's the case. It's almost as if they are not representing us, and they're only there to represent special interests and the military-industrial complex. You can't just allow families to wonder what's going to happen to their children's health insurance. Again, these are kids. They're the future of this country. You have to let them know. You can't just let their lives hang in the balance. And out of all the things that Congress does, I mean, this is truly bipartisan legislation. So if you can't even get something as simple as this done, making sure that more children are covered, then I don't know what Congress is good for. And look, when Hillary Clinton, back in the early 1990s, before she was bought off by the health insurance industry, she actually lobbied the hardest for this particular program. This is her achievement. This is her, I think, signature accomplishment of her life. I mean, this is one of the best things she did. This is what she got when she was unable to pass a single-payer healthcare system. So, I mean, she should be fighting for this. The Democratic Party should be yelling, you know, and screaming about this. But, I mean, really, Chip, it, <laughs> it kind of died with uh, nobody even noticing. How is the mainstream media not talking about this? If you don't support this, I don't know what to say about your you. You you lack humanity. You lack empathy. You're a bad person. So Congress, get your shit together. Reauthorize CHIP. Because this is something that shouldn't even be debatable. Of course we want children in this country to have health insurance. What are we doing? Jesus. We have another instance when a so-called family values Republican was outed as a gigantic hypocrite so before we get to the story first of all um we got to reset our counter back to zero i was hoping we would hit double digits you know i'm rooting for you guys but unfortunately we've got another scandal and we are now back to a big fat zero let's do better guys so this time we have Republican Congressman Tim Murphy from Pennsylvania, and according to the Post-Gazette, the congressman has been lauded by the Family Research Council for his stance on abortion as well as for family values generally. He also has been endorsed by LifePAC, which opposes abortion rights and is a member of the House Pro-Life Caucus, an affiliation that is often cited by his office. So you can kind of see where this is going, right, and where his hypocrisy is specifically so he is definitely against abortion in fact he's unequivocally against abortion he's made that no secret and when it comes to family family values generally speaking even though the family research council is saying that he's this great guy well we found out earlier in uh the month of september that he isn't really so much in favor of family values as he claims because he had an affair on his wife <laughs> So, family values, Republican, had an extramarital affair. Now, that's one part of the story, but we learned that he actually urged his mistress to get an abortion. <laughs> <laughs> 
text message sent in January to U.S. Representative Tim Murphy by a woman with whom he had an extramarital relationship took him to task for an anti-abortion statement posted on Facebook from his office's public account. And you have zero issue posting your pro-life stance all over the place when you had no issue asking me to abort our unborn child just last week when we thought that was one of the options. Shannon Edwards, a forensic psychologist in Pittsburgh with whom the congressman admitted last month to having a relationship, wrote to Mr. Murphy on January 25th in the midst of an unfounded pregnancy scare. A text from Mr. Murphy's cell phone number that same day in response says, I get what you say about my March for Life messages. I've never written them. Staff does them. I read them and winced. I told staff don't write any more. I will. So let's pause and recap. His mistress, who he had an extramarital affair with, well, he urged her to have an abortion and then after posting anti-choice things on his Facebook page, the public Facebook uh, account for his, uh, uh, his office, his mist mistress was offended by that. <laughs> Sorry. His mistress was offended by that and, um, and decided to call him out. Uh, for his hypocrisy. Now, if that wasn't enough, quote, he is currently a co-sponsor with 181 other legislators of the pain-capable Unborn Child Protection Act, which would bar abortion after 20 weeks except in cases of rape, incest, or where the pregnancy poses a threat to the life or physical health of the mother. Mr. Murphy voted for the bill Tuesday evening, according to roll call. It passed 237 to 189. So, He's a hypocrite, but besides him just being a gigantic hypocrite, he's also, according to his own staff, a gigantic asshole. Because not only is he creating a hostile work environment for his staff, well, there was also, quote, a pronounced pattern of sustained inappropriate behavior from him. So this guy all around not only is a hypocrite, but just a dick in general. I think there's no better term to describe him. Simply put, he's a dickhead. So, you know, Tim Murphy is another Republican to add to the long list of pro-family values politicians that were outed as gigantic hypocrites, either supporting abortion, being closeted homosexuals after having a career, being anti-LGBT. I mean, look, I love these types of stories because it really demonstrates just how morally bankrupt the Republican Party is and how they don't stand for anything. You know, they're only pro-life to pander to their evangelical right-wing Christian base. So, um, I love these type of stories. I, I, I love talking about them. And, you know, the best part is that, you know, as this story ends and becomes irrelevant in the news cycle, we only have to wait about a week or two for the next pro-family values GOP politician to be exposed as a gigantic hypocrite. So, uh, keep them coming. I think this is absolutely great. Congressman Tim Murphy made the decision today after text messages surfaced showing that he suggested his mistress have an abortion despite the congressman's pro-life stance. At the time, both thought she was pregnant, although it turned out she was not. Murphy represents the Pittsburgh area. He will step down when his term ends in 2019. <laughs> <laughs> So it seems like Senate Democrats have finally come to terms with the reality that Medicare for All is in fact a litmus test. And if they don't co-sponsor Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill, then it's very likely that they will be primaried. So now that they know what's at stake, Democrats are reacting 
And some of them aren't too keen on the idea of Medicare for All being a litmus test. So Senate Democrat Brian Schatz spoke out against the idea of Medicare for All being a litmus test on the Arena Talks podcast, saying, quote, I'll just make one broader point about healthcare and politics. It's only in healthcare where if you are not for single payer, you are immediately a sellout. It is only in healthcare where everything becomes a litmus test about your progressive purity shot said. And I think that's nuts, he added. I think Medicaid should compete with these private sector options. I don't think it should necessarily replace the private insurance market, shot said. I'm open to a proper legislative process where we take three, four, five good progressive ideas maybe even three, four, five moderate or conservative ideas and see what shakes out, Schott said. Why don't you tell us how you really feel, Brian? (laughs) So since he is not co-sponsoring Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill uh, and doesn't support the idea of single payer, he stated his intention to sponsor a bill that would establish a public option. So, first of all, I'm glad that he at least acknowledges that Medicare for All is, in fact, a litmus test, because in accepting that fact, it does legitimize progressives and empowers us. But he is implying here that it's arbitrary for progressives to accuse Democrats who are against single payer as being sellouts, because not everyone who disagrees with progressives are just automatically sellouts. I mean, there's nuance. You can have a difference of opinion. That's that's basically what he's contending. Now, theoretically speaking, he's not wrong there, but the problem is that on an issue like Medicare for All, the overwhelming majority of the Democratic Party's voters want Medicare for All. So in simply saying, well, I have a policy disagreement, well, too bad. You were voted in office to represent the American people, specifically the Democratic Party's constituents. So in not supporting Medicare for All and not co-sponsoring Bernie Sanders' bill, in remaining defiant to what Democratic Party voters want, I think that you're doing a disservice to them, and I think that you are not representing them well. And second of all, this argument about us arbitrarily labeling everyone who disagrees with us as sellouts, you know, it would have a little bit more weight to it if Brian Schatz wasn't a sellout himself. He's literally a sellout to the health insurance industry. Throughout the course of his career, he took more than $100,000 from health industry packs And Blue Cross Blue Shield, surprise, surprise, is literally one of its top contributors. So for whatever reason, these health insurance companies that stand to make a lot of money off of sick Americans, they really like Brian Schatz. I wonder why that's the case. Oh, that's right. It's because he's fighting against single payer. Now, again, (laughs) I find it so hilarious that his implication is that progressives shouldn't pin any and all people that disagree with them as sellouts when he literally sold out. I'm not calling you a sellout because you disagree with me, Brian. I'm calling you a sellout because that's a fact. When I look at your campaign contributions, when we look at your FEC filings, we see you took money from the health insurance industry. You know what that makes you? A motherfucking sellout. If you don't like that fact, then stop taking money from them. Now, he supports a public option and theoretically speaking, I do too, because yeah, that's a step in the right direction. But the problem is that if you start negotiations with Republicans at a public option, do you know where you'll end up? With Obamacare. And that's exactly what happened. He talked about how, you know, we need to to take a couple of progressive ideas, mix those in with some ideas from moderates and even conservatives and see what we get. But that's exactly what we did with the Affordable Care Act and negotiations for the Affordable Care Act. We got a Republican-based plan 
that was thought up by a conservative think tank, the Heritage Foundation. So I don't, I don't understand how he could still say this with a straight face. And in championing the idea of a public option, this is just his way of keeping his donors in business. And unless you take the profit motive out of healthcare, then you will continue to have a system where money is the priority, not the delivery of healthcare. And that is wrong. So for me, the default is Medicare for all. And if someone has money and they want to buy insurance on the private market, then they could do that. Now, I'm okay with that in Bernie Sanders' bill and John Conyers' bill, but personally, I would just outright abolish private insurance companies because I don't want a two-tiered healthcare system where the rich and the poor get different levels of care. I want a system where everyone has the same level of healthcare because the lives of Americans shouldn't be valued based on how much money they have. It should be valued because they're American citizens and we take care of our own. So Brian Schatz here, you know, I, I'm glad that he decided to speak out because, you know, credit where credit is due. A lot of Senate Democrats will usually just be passive aggressive or they will, uh, they'll, they'll make an off the record statement, but here he is, you know, uh, he's saying that he doesn't support Medicare for all and he thinks the idea of a litmus test is nuts. No, the idea of not supporting Medicare for all is nuts at this point because currently we have thousands of people dying every single year due to a lack of health insurance. And if you think it's nuts for us to ask for something that all other modern industrialized countries have, then you're nuts. It's not us, it's you. Sorry, Brian. So this week, of course, we had the worst mass shooting in the history of our country. And, you know, the situation in Las Vegas was just gut-wrenching to me. It was, um, you know, looking at reports and seeing pictures, it was really, really difficult to look at, to just see that level of pain and suffering and panic. As a humanist, it's unthinkable to me. You know, I, I can't even begin to fathom what would drive someone to do something so horrific. How morally bankrupt do you have to be to take that many lives? I don't know. Um, it, it almost makes me want to look into any studies from psychologists who study these types of people. But I mean, how do you, how do you study them? How do you even begin to grasp what the hell would drive them to commit such an atrocity? Because, I mean, there, there's no logic, there's no rationale that can justify their actions. So that, you know, seeing this incident unfold, man, it, it was, it was really tough to watch. Um, and I know you all feel the same way, of course. And anytime there is a mass shooting incident in this country, it just makes it more and more clear that the United States needs to reform its policy with regard to gun ownership laws. And no, I'm not talking about repealing the Second Amendment. I'm not talking about confiscation. I don't support these things. What I am talking about is moderate gun control that we've seen implemented in countries like Canada, the United Kingdom, Australia. They've implemented policies that work, which is why when you look at statistics, you know, specifically the uh, shootings per 100,000 residents, you'll see that the United States, I mean, we are way beyond any of, you know, comparable countries. So it, we've got to do something. So the need for gun reform, of course, it's apparent with these tragedies, but the Las Vegas shooting also made it clear that we also need to reform when it comes to another area, and that is 
healthcare reform. So Zaid Jelani of The Intercept explains that this morning, Clark County Commission Chair Steve Sisolak set up a GoFundMe, a private crowdfunding platform, to request charity for those injured in the massacre. Nevada's Republican Governor Brian Sandoval vetoed legislation over the summer that would have allowed Nevadans to buy into the state's Medicaid program. Asking strangers for charitable donations to tackle medical bills is ubiquitous in the United States. A report by NerdWallet released in 2015 found that $930 million of the $2 billion raised by GoFundMe since its 2010 launch have been related to medical bills. Yet, NerdWallet's comprehensive survey of crowdfunding sites found that barely 1 in 10 medical campaigns raised the full amount they asked for. Yeah, so that is the reality of the situation in America. Immediately when these types of tragedies happen, we have to think about how the victims who were injured, and there was over 100 people, are going to pay for the medical bills that they will inevitably uh, receive. Now, even if we're not going to move towards a single-payer healthcare system in the near future, you'd think that after tragedies like this, Congress would pass bills that would take care of the medical expenses for the victims, right? But I mean, as you saw with 9-11, Jon Stewart had to shame Republicans into voting to provide health care to first responders. I mean, there's so much that needs to be done when we see tragedies like this. And, you know, the things that are needed to prevent these types of tragedies and, uh, you know, what's needed to be done to take care of the health care bills for these types of tragedies, it really is demoralizing, right? Besides just the heartbreak, it's demoralizing from... A political aspect because it really makes it feel like we have so much work that you know a lot of people just might feel inclined to give up i know this week you know seeing everything that happened it was so daunting you know so discouraging so depressing that you know sometimes it just makes what little progress we we've made feel insufficient and of course you know it's not far enough but we're, we're working on it and clearly there is one issue that i think is preventing reform in all the areas that the U.S. needs to reform. And of course, that's money in politics. The reason why we don't have a single-bear healthcare system is because the health insurance industry buys off politicians. The reason why we don't have gun reform, even just reasonable, moderate reform, such as universal background checks, which 90% of the country supports, is because the NRA has bought off an entire political party. And if they so much as question whether or not we should consider doing something like universal background checks then what happens well that politician's career is over unless we get campaign finance reform unless we get a constitutional amendment to overturn citizens united and mandate public funding of elections it's going to be really difficult to accomplish all these things but certainly we have to fight individually and we have to know that there's one overarching goal that we all have to be cognizant of, and that is campaign finance reform. Even though, you know, when you're kind of down in the trench trenches fighting for uh, single-payer health care and gun reform, it's, the, it, it's so easy to lose sight of what makes this fight so difficult to begin with, and that is money in politics. So I really think that, you know, the takeaway, at least for me, politically, you know, besides the heartbreak with this tragedy, is that... I think we need to have a renewed focus on campaign finance reform, and that goes, you know, without saying, because if we don't, then these mass shooting incidents will continue, and, um, you know, we're going to have to resort to GoFundMe in order to pay for medical bills, 
and we shouldn't have to do that. So look, you know, I apologize for my thoughts being scattered. It's just that this was, this was such a tragic thing to, um, to see. I don't have to tell you guys that, you know, it's, it's difficult to really come to any resounding conclusions and have, you know, a specific takeaway, but look, my heart's breaking for everyone. My heart goes out to the families of the victims and anyone who was there, who's now traumatized for life. My heart goes out to you. My thoughts are with you. Um, but more importantly, we're going to be fighting for you politically. So anytime there's a tragedy in this country, be it a hurricane or a mass shooting, we always have the usual suspects, the bottom feeders in this country, come out in droves to say dumb, offensive things at a time when really they should be more respectful of the victims. So this week, during an airing of the 700 Club, a title which presumably reflects the age of its host, Pat Robertson, he gave us a really interesting and I'd say unorthodox hypothesis as to why the shooter decided to kill 58 people in Las Vegas. Is it because the United States has the most lax gun laws in the modern world? Well, of course not. Is it because he's a crazy person? No. It's because since we disrespect Donald Trump and the national anthem and God, and we have no you know, religious authority in this country, that's why these types of things occur, according to Pat Robertson. Violence in the streets, ladies and gentlemen. Why is it happening? You know, what I'd like to give you is... The fact that we have disrespect for authority, there is profound disrespect of our president all across this nation. They say terrible things about him. It's in the news. It's in other places. There's disrespect now for our national anthem, disrespect for our veterans, disrespect for the institutions of our government, disrespect for the, the court system, all the way up and down the line, disrespect. And when you lose that kind of respect, you lose this authority. But more than anything, until there is biblical authority, there has to be some controlling authority in our society. And there is none. And when the, there is no vision of God, the people say, there's no vision of God, the people run amok. When there's no vision of God, the people run amok. And that we, we have taken from the American people the vision of God, the whole idea of reward and punishment, an ultimate uh, judge of all our actions. We've taken that away. And when there is no vision of God, the people run amok. What the hell did you just say? So as someone with no respect for Donald Trump or the national anthem or the flag, as someone with... Um, <laughs> No biblical authority or vision of God, as he refers to it. I'm not, quote, running amok. I have no desire to kill people, nor do I like when other people kill people. I unequivocally condemn violence, and I don't like violence. I hate violence. It makes me sick to my stomach. But even though I'm just one anecdotal example, we can still reject Pat Robertson's idiotic hypothesis because having disrespect for Donald Trump or American political institutions doesn't catalyze these types of tragedies that makes no sense that's not a causal mechanism that's not the way that reality functions pat robertson you can't blame things that you want to blame because you want the world to have respect for donald trump or the national anthem doesn't mean that you get to arbitrarily blame 
mass shootings on the lack of respect that Americans have for Donald Trump and the national anthem. That's not a deduction that logical human beings that think rationally make. And his argument is offensive because it implies that God is needed for morality and that the only thing stopping people from killing each other is the fear of being punished by a higher power, which is absurd to me. If you're honestly telling me, Pat, that in the absence of fearing punishment from a higher power, you would just start killing people and raping people, then there are more deeper issues with you than I thought. Because most normal human beings do not like to kill people. It's called human empathy. That doesn't come from a higher power. That comes from evolution, Pat. Trigger warning, I said evolution. But look, Pat Robertson isn't alone. He's not the only bottom feeder that decided to make an idiotic statement that honestly makes my mind... <laughs> It, it hurts my head. It, it hurts my head. It makes my head feel like it's going to explode. But I mean, he wasn't alone because we had Alex Jones come up with a different statement. So he thinks that um, the Las Vegas shooting was a false flag, literally. Here's the other big news. On Saturday night, Monday morning, Sunday morning, they released OJ just 20 hours before the attack took place. So all the media would come and be in place to cover this event. The whole thing has the hallmarks of being scripted by deep state Democrats and their Islamic allies using mental patient cutouts. I'm Alex Jones. You are so dumb. You are really dumb. For real. Now, if you're surprised by that, don't be because Alex Jones literally thinks that everything ever is a conspiracy. He even thought that Sandy Hook was a conspiracy and it was a false flag as he referred to it. And it, I mean, let's read his words because I'm speechless as you could tell. Um, that the Las Vegas shooting, according to him, quote, has the hallmarks of being scripted by deep state Democrats and their Islamic allies. There are so many conspiracy theories embedded in that short statement that I don't even know where to begin. First of all, the Democratic Party is not aligned with the Islamic State. Just because Democrats and liberals aren't bigoted towards Muslims and don't overgeneralize Muslims, unlike you and uh, conservatives, doesn't mean that they are aligned with ISIS. ISIS does not equal all Muslims. Just like white shooters does not equal all white males and white Americans. But unfortunately, that's not necessarily a deduction that Alex Jones can make because um, not only is he an actor, but he has an agenda, you know, that he's trying to get across here, which I honestly don't know what it is, but I know it's pro-Trump and it's right-wing and it's dumb. Now, he also, um, he says that this has the hallmarks of being scripted by deep state Democrats because, you know, it, it just so happened that the release of O.J. Sim Simpson coincided with this shooting. Why is it that other important news stories are somehow related, that there's this big cabal who is planning the events that happen in this country for political purposes. I mean, it just blows my mind to be that conspiratorial, to be that paranoid. It, it's really weird to me. Like, it, it makes no sense. So, I mean, look, I don't want to drone on about these two idiots, but I certainly did want to shine a spotlight on their insanity because I think that at a time when the country needs to come together, we have divisive buffoons like Pat Robertson and Alex Jones make these statements that... It's just hurtful to the American people, and most importantly, they're wrong. And so if these idiots are going to come out and say stupid things that have no foundation in reality, then it's incumbent on progressives like myself to come out and denounce what they're saying and shine a spotlight on their idiocy. Because I do think that when you shine a spotlight on people's stupidity, 
that alone will turn rational, sane thinking people off. So I barely have to say anything about Alex Jones and Pat Roberts, and I just have to showcase their own words to you. And I think that that is enough to communicate just how morally bankrupt these opportunistic bottom feeders are. Well, that's all I got for you guys in this edition of The Humanist Report. I want to thank you all so much for watching. If you've made it this far in the episode, I want to send a special thank you to all of our Patreon patrons and PayPal contributors, and also a thank you to everyone listening in on iTunes and SoundCloud. Uh, so yeah, uh, that's all I got for you guys. I'm trying to think. There was something else I wanted to talk about towards the end of the episode that I am now forgetting, but that tends to happen after, you know, these longer episodes when I've been talking for a long time. Uh, so, <laughs> so I think we'll just end it right there. Thank you all so much. Um, I will see you all next week. Take care.